Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pastanek, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, uh, responsible for so much beatneck damage. <laughs> Hello again, and welcome to episode 59 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Kerouac. What do you think about that? Katie, I think so many things about Kerouac. Obviously, um, as a cliche, you know, as a white male who grew up wanting to be a writer and became a writer, um, I was very excited to see in Billy's lyrics that he mentions the author of On the Road, um, yes. which is clearly a seminal novel for many people. When did you read it? Uh, I think it's sort of in that blurry period between age... 14 and a half and 17. Uh, many key years. Key years. Key years for absorbing anything that was vaguely bohemian because my entire goal was to claw my way out of the Virginia suburbs <laughs> and end up somewhere cool and end up as someone cool. And the beat generation seemed like a, a pretty good place to start. I spent many hours, Tom, in my yellow beanbag chair. I was just kind of sunken into an <laughs> egg shape uh, with the smell of warm plastic in, in a, lifting in a gentle halo around me as I sucked myself into Jack Kerouac's tale of just go, go, going across America. And I remember reading it faster and faster and faster as I got more and more sucked in. How about you? Yeah, I was thinking about this on the way in this morning, Katie. So I was given On the Road, as many people are, because it's the sort of book that gets passed around, isn't it? Yeah. Like a prophet sharing some holy word. And I was given it by a friend of mine called Jane, who I had a fantastic friendship with. She came from a very bohemian family. My family, many wonderful things, but not bohemian. So the books on the family shelves of the Fordyce uh, family were probably the collective works of Wilbur Smith, basically... Uh, African thrillers, the collective works of <laughs> Ken Follett, Nazi thrillers, and the collective works of Dick Francis, stable-based thrillers, which all have their place. <laughs> Stable, as in... Yeah, very much so. I'll get you a Dick Francis. I can see you haven't read one. So to be exposed to On the Road as someone who did love reading and wanted to be a writer was genuinely mind-blowing because it just 
seemed to open all these possibilities of what you could do with the English language, the risks you could take, the rules you could just disregard, and what you could say and what you could experience. So it was a genuinely life-changing thing. And when I think about On the Road, I think about the time I spent with my friend Jane and the things that we did together as friends and the, the, the conversations we had. So it's a really special book. I think to me as well. Um, it is also, Katie, a very special book to our guest today, Daniel Kane. Now, Daniel is a native New Yorker. He used to work at the University of Sussex. He now teaches in Sweden at the University of Uppsala. He is an expert in the Beat Generation, the author of two big books about the Beat Generation that we'll talk about. And he used to study, get this, Katie, under Allen Ginsberg. Oh, wow. Daniel, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you. And not literally under him, but uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. That, that, that was uh, often a possibility with, with Ginsburg. Um. <laughs> There's so much to talk about with Kerouac and with his seminal books. But the first question I've got for you, really, as someone who has to study them and teaches them, is when was the last time you read On the Road? Is it a, a, a novel you keep coming back to? Honestly, it was about four months ago. I read it. <laughs> I read it constantly just because I, I, I've been teaching a course called From the Beat Generation to the Black Arts Movement, and I started that course at University of Sussex and, and kind of transported it over here um, to Sweden. So, yeah, it's something I, I keep on coming back to and, like Katie, have a really intimate connection to it based on, on my desires to be cool as a 15-year-old. You know? And I think that's a really, really common experience that so many people have uh, with Kerouac. It's, the book was, at the time, a kind of lifeline for me, and I think it's been a lifeline for so many, for so many kids, frankly, who, who are looking for a kind of join-the-circus lifestyle that gets them out of the perhaps boring situation that they find themselves in, you know. Oh, I love that uh, idea, the joining the circus idea, because it really is that. It's a, it's very much an exhortation, an invitation to the dance. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny that you say that. It reminds me, um, I, I'm, I'm going to confess here to being a bit of a deadhead in the, in the 1980s, mm. you know, the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I remember as a kid thinking, ah, this is what Kerak was talking about. You know, this sense of um, joining these these caravans of, of outcasts and really interesting, colorful people going from city to city to dance, you know, it was, it was a kind of possibility of, of ecstasis that really wasn't available in day-to-day -day life. That's interesting. You should say that, Daniel, because uh, later on, I do want to ask you about Kerouac's implied or maybe more than implied antipathy towards hippies. Um, ah, sure, sure. Yeah. But before we get too much further into Kerouac and On the Road and indeed that whole beat generation, what is meant by the word beat? Because Kerouac complained it had been taken up to signify something nihilistic, whereas he saw it as something pure, or he tied it into the word beatitude. Um, and and, and yeah. I was I, I was just wondering what how you could uh, describe it or or uh, spell it out for us. Yeah, I mean Kerouac was a bit of a self mythologizer, right? So yeah. the, the 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 link of that word beat to beatitude really only happens in the sort of mid fifties, around fifty four or so. But that word was coined in the 40s when he's hanging around with a bunch of, of pretty sketchy characters, including Herbert Hunky, a kind of small-time hustler, thief, um, etc., who hangs around Times Square. And, and, you know, Kerouac uses that word beat 
in the context of beat down, down and out, etc. Um, it's only when the word becomes a kind of cultural cliche that he revises it, right? Right. Um, and then, what was it? It was it was when he um, revisits his hometown of Lowell, I think in the mid-50s, 54, 55, something like that. And he goes to uh, the church that he spent so much of his youth in. And, and he says something like, you know, I suddenly realize beat means beatitude, beatific. Uh. Um, you know, I believe in beatitude and, and God so loves the world, etc. Um, so, yeah, he, he tries to, in a sense, spin the word away from the cultural cliche. It was already becoming at that time, right? By the mid-50s, the beatnik was, was a kind of embarrassing tag to be uh, associated with. So he worked against that. He worked against the very thing that he coined, in a sense. There was a, a, a moment uh, later on in his life, he was on the TV show hosted by Steve Allen in America, who seemed uh, very sympathetic to the cause and uh, was accompanying Kerouac as he read from his book on uh, Steve was playing the piano. Jack, uh, got a couple of square questions, but I think the answer would be interesting. How long did it take you to write On the Road? Three weeks. How many? Three weeks. Three weeks? That's amazing. How long were you on the road itself? Seven years. Seven and, years. and Steve asked him what beat meant. How would you define the word beat? <laughs> I don't mean why not time. I mean, really, is there Well, any? sympathetic. Sympathetic? All right. I asked. And indeed, well, the answer was, point, it means sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that a beautiful moment? I, that sweetness and tenderness that Kerouac exhibits in that interview mm-hmm. always just breaks my heart, you know. Um, and his reading from the book is, is just gorgeous. But, mm. yeah. The interviews we're talking about, Katie, we'll try and um, stick it on our social media, but you can find it on YouTube, can't you? Yeah. And it is the strangest thing because it appears um, to be an ordinary chat show. American TV chat show, yet the host uh, accompanies his questions and the responses he gets from Jack Kerouac by playing some light jazz musings <laughs> yeah. on a grand piano, Yeah, which is quite the charming thing. Yeah, kind of a lounge lizard approach. Yeah. Um, Daniel, talk to us about the members of the beat generation that you've known, because you studied under Allen Ginsberg, for instance. Can you give us a sense of their worldview and what drove them and what their objectives were? Gosh, I don't know if I can tell you what their worldview and objectives were necessarily, but I mean, what what I can tell you was, you know, having the great privilege of being a teenager and going to this place, the Poetry Project, um, which is still going on. It's a poetry reading series that started in 1966, and it's based in a church called St. Mark's Church on 2nd Avenue Oh yeah, um, in New York's East Village. And this was a place, you know, you walk into a reading and there they all are. You know, there's Ginsburg hobnobbing with Jim Carroll. Um, wow. There's Patti Smith talking and arguing with Ann Waldman. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it was that having access to that world. And by the way, I was never in that world. I was always the, you know, the invisible person in the audience. I, I can never, I would never claim to be in that scene by any means. But having access to it, having access to, to you know, at times two, three readings a week, was in a sense my um, alternative school and introduction, not just to the beat generation, but to a kind of series of concentric circles of poets and writers who are indebted to and emanate out of that scene. Again, all of whom found a great, great uh, uh, model for uh, writing in Kerouac's prose, right? And in, and in Ginsburg's poetry, 
along with, of course, the poetry of John Ashbery and Frank O'Hara. So it's those interlinked worlds of poetic scenes um, that, that uh, was to prove so, in a sense, influential in how I ended up, which is like this weird academic in Sweden <laughs> hanging on about you know, the beat generation to some pretty bemused students for the most part. But ho- hopefully they dig it, like they say, and, and spreading the love, et cetera. But yeah, no, Gin- Ginsburg taught a class at NYU when I was a graduate student there. Um, and that was remarkable, an absolutely remarkable experience in terms of his introducing us to all sorts of new writing that we would otherwise have never had access to. Um, it was great, totally great. So when we look back at the early years for Kerouac, Daniel, there was things that I found out which didn't surprise me, and there were things that I found out that astonished me. So the Catholicism, which is clearly so part of his writing, that is there from his French-Canadian parents and is clearly a huge part of his life. But I didn't realise that French was actually his first language and that he wasn't really speaking and writing English until much later in life. That's right. And, you know, in a, in a French is putting it generously. Um, uh-huh. Check out a book by uh, one of his biographers, Tom Clark, who writes really beautifully about um, what is essentially Kerouac's first language which is called Joual, J-O-U-A-L. So Clark describes this as a sublingo, and it's actually oral speech. It's a kind of hybrid French, very mixed up and totally specific to Lowell, Massachusetts, and indeed totally specific to the neighborhood that Kerouac is in. It's something I think that was hugely important to him, right? This idea that English wasn't even available to him until he was around five, okay? So he grew up speaking a a, a language that was entirely in the air, oral, you know, it it wasn't inscribed. So I think it's interesting to consider what's it like to have a language that you just kind of make up as you go along, if you see what I mean, right? There's a great, great book of, of Kerouac's called Visions of Girard. Have you come across that by any chance? I haven't. No. Yeah, so this is Kerak describing Joao, right, hearing this language, speaking this language as a kid. And I'm quoting Kerak now. It swims in through all windows and revolves around the rumors and runs like a river. Voices, language, gossip, crashes, jingles and jangles. There's no end to it. Whole rant sentences can be heard in rising and falling snatches of vigorous can of quoi. You know, it's just like, ah, right, I see where you got your pro style from. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Mm. It's interesting how his process seemed to involve squirreling himself away for long periods of time to write and figure out what his whole gig was, and then coming out of his little squirrely hole and immersing himself with the aforementioned 'er ne'er-do-wells and living that whole, you know, experiencing the rawness and just embedding himself in in whatever uh, mayhem and chaos is going on. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when he's had enough of all the hijinks and adventures, he goes back to Mamere's house where she cooks some breakfast every morning. You know, <laughs> he, he spends so much time living with his mother and, and typing out his great works in, in these various suburban homes that she lived in. Um, it's incredible. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, these people were really useful for character. And by these people, by the way, I'm referring to, you know, Ginsburg. Um, Cassidy, Burroughs, etc., all of whom appear as characters throughout his novels. But these these people were important to him as character sketches. Um, 
they were as important to him for, for, for that purpose as they were, I think, for basic terms of friendship. Sure. And also, you touch on something that I just find so interesting. When history is written, and even the way I understood it as a young woman reading On the Road, you just think, oh, there's just all these cool men doing men's things, which involve adventure and striking out on the road. He (laughs) couldn't have done it without a support system of living with his mother, (laughs) who washed his underpants and cooked him breakfast. I mean, that is always the case. Like, you know, hi, you're not going to be able to be this free, you know, road dog without a woman propping you up. I know, I know. And and what to our eyes and ears now seem like a shockingly, uh, let's, let's face it, racist attitude towards um, Mexican people, and in particular Mexican women in the final section of, of On the Road, where, um, you know, these young women are there to serve the, the, uh, the imperial master on his visit to across the border. Absolutely. Um, of course, right? On the road is, is totally misogynistic. But this has come up in, uh, when I teach the novel also. I think that there are moments of profound self-consciousness on, on the part of the narrator of On the Road uh, that he is actually a jerk. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that he actually is misrepresenting uh, women in a truly violent way. Um, I, you know, I anticipated this question. Can I read you a little section from On the Road just as a way to illustrate what Definitely. I'm talking about? Sure. Yeah, this is the end, of, the end of chapter three. My aunt once said, the world would never find peace until men fell at their women's feet and asked for forgiveness. But Dean knew this. He'd mentioned it many times. I've pleaded and pleaded with Mary Lou for a peaceful, sweet understanding of pure love between us forever with all hassles thrown out. She understands. Her mind is bent on something else. She's after me. She won't understand how much I love her. She's knitting my doom. (laughs) The truth of the matter is we don't understand our women. We blame on them and it's all our fault, I said. But it isn't as simple as that, warned Dean. Peace will come suddenly. We won't understand when it does. See, man, you know, it's just like, oh, right. There's this little glimpse of consciousness on the part of Sal Paradise, who's the stand-in for Kerak himself, right? As they're, in a sense, acknowledging their own hateful behavior towards the women they they purportedly love. I hang on to those moments (laughs) when I I read on the road and talk about it with my students, because if, if they weren't there, I think, the book would would otherwise fall flat. Little little glimpses of light there, you know. I'll be honest, Katie, I'm really enjoying this episode, but there is quite a lot for us to get our little brains around. So why don't we have a short time out here for some adverts and come back in a second. Hello, I'm Alan Cumming. And I have a new podcast called Alan Cummings Shelves. You see, I have quite a few shelves in my house that are sort of a museum of my life. In each episode, I'm going to take an item off my shelves, tell you why it's there in the first place, then start to talk about my memories of it. And then I chat with a friend who's involved in those memories. I've spoken to Ian McKellen about a hemp bracelet that he bought me on a nudist beach we visited together, Cindy Lauper about a pair of white leather gloves I wore on Broadway, and you even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about my Spice Girls lunchbox, and that is not a euphemism. 
I have some really amazing guests coming on to chat, so I just hope you will join me. And all you have to do to do that is to search for Alan Cummings Shelves, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you soon. There are so many myths about On the Road, Daniel, which sort of makes sense because it's a book that has affected so many people so profoundly. So let's go through some of these myths, um, some of which are around how Kerouac actually writes it. So I'll give you a few facts and you can sort of stand them up or shoot them down for us. So uh, the fact that he writes the final draft in 20 days, that he writes it on a roll of paper which is 37 metres long on the basis that he doesn't want to stop once he's in the flow of typing and that the only things that he consumes in this mad 20 days KT are cigarettes, coffee, pea soup and amphetamine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, but have you read that scroll version? <laughs> you know, it's something that was edited in the end by Malcolm Cowley. I mean, that that the original version, which is is now practically a fetish object, right? You see the <laughs> scroll at the British Library, for example, and you ooh and ah over it, etc. I mean, it's an exciting it's an exciting manuscript. But it's not the book that we ended up falling in love with when we were 15, 16. So I think it's important to actually think about that as a draft, a draft that was redeemed by, by his editor, Malcolm Cowley, who kind of beat it into shape over Kerouac's many protestations, right? I mean, Cowley was terrified that many of the characters whom Kerouac named directly in the book would just end up suing the publisher, right? Um, so Callie was instrumental in, in convincing Kerouac to uh, create a whole set of pseudonyms for all the characters. But that legend is sort of true. He did do that, right? He did do that in about, in about three weeks. Um, and although it's important to stress that it's not like it just poured out of him in one big bleh, he'd been cogitating on this book for sure. years, right? And living, living it. And again, right, I go back to your earlier comments about the town and the city. The town and the city is a kind of model um, for thinking about the form that On the Road could take, as crucially are the letters that he's trading back and forth with Neil Cassidy. I mean, famously, Neil Cassidy sends him this kind of 40,000-word letter um, that Kerouac just found fascinating. And in a sense, you know, biographers have, su have suggested not that Kerouac necessarily cribs from or steals from Cassidy's style, but, you know, without Cassidy, we may not have had um, that, that kind of those, again, those sort of long, looping and exuberant lines. Um, oh, yeah, because, I mean, when you read, I've read snippets of these letters from Neil Cassidy to his oh, friend right, Jack Kerouac, right. and, uh, yeah. yeah, you're like, oh, I can see that there's a little bit of aping going on. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, and Daniel, what is the nature of Kerouac's fascination with Neil Cassidy? Because it seems like, uh, okay, there's admiration, but it also seems like he's kind of in love with the guy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, critics go to town on this one. I mean, the, the, to use a, a sort of act, vaguely academic word, the homosociality of on the road, <laughs> you know, you, you can, you can detect that on, on practically every page. And, and Kerouac does, you know, experiment with homosexuality, both as, as a young boy growing up 
in Lowell, Massachusetts, and, and with his friends in New York City. Things were pretty fluid. And again, I think we can, in a sense, create parallels between Kerouac's ongoing affection for um, that French argot that he spoke as a kid um, and Cassidy's improvisational style of talking. I mean, talking as a kind of art form. So this idea of improvisation, spontaneity, Neil Cassidy embodied that as a person. Um, and I, that was hugely, hugely seductive for Kerouac, who I think, as you've suggested, is a mama's boy at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, as, as you've suggested, you know, Neil looks pretty good. He's quite oh, masculine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, in fact, we haven't really discussed Kerouac, but I understand that the ladies found Jack Kerouac quite irresistible. What, what was his look? Oh, so handsome, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen pictures of him with the kind sure. of lumberjack shirt. Yeah, exactly. Brooding, handsome, that, that irresistible mix of toughness and vulnerability. Yeah. I totally understand why people would be drawn to him. He was know? a little more shy. Like, he was a shy guy as opposed yeah. to, to Neil Cassidy. I've seen clips or home movies of uh, the beat guys hanging out and the ladies. And yeah. and Neil is a real strutter. Like, he yes. kind of has his chest is, yeah. Yeah, chest is puffed up and just kind of posing, even when he's leaning against a car. And the two of them together, almost like... Uh, beat generation boy band absolutely absolutely you know in some of my darkest moments when i'm reading on the road and i'm thinking what is this this is just like frat boys on a road trip right <laughs> um but at other times i do see this this kind of the way that their friendship embodies the the old weird America of, of Appalachian folk songs, oh, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, a, a, a kind of a, a kind of friendship that is practically emblematic of a nostalgic vision of the possibilities of America. Yeah. If you see what I mean, does that make any sense? Yes, Maybe it that's does. A bit too abstract, I mean, but. no, uh, no, it's not abstract at all. Because as an American reading it, I realize what a vanished—it's a portrait of a vanished country right. that I yeah. sort of remember from you know my early childhood in the '60s and '70s. You know, there were still glimpses of it there, but um, that diversity, those little pockets of weirdness, the oddness, the regionalism—the um, right. the fact that you could have an adventure. Uh, from going state to state as opposed to now where you're just going from one Target strip mall to another Target strip mall. So it's very much more homogenized. I mean, I remember reading, um, I'm just going to read a little snippet from the beginning of On the Road, but for me, this kind of sums up what Jack is after. So he says, the only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. Time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. And in the middle, you see the blue center light pop and everyone goes, ah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, I mean, right, that is the classic passage from the book. And you may hear my voice choking a little bit now. That always brings me to tears. It's Mm -hmm. so gorgeous. It's so tender. It's so affectionate for this kind of entirely nostalgic vision of small town America that I think a lot of Americans still hold on to, you know. It's interesting reading on the road to find out that 
almost seems, especially in a passage like that, idealistic and naive. Yeah, so idealistic. Totally. Yeah, whereas when I first encountered it as a child, Tom, I thought it was like knowing and world weary. Oh, and no. uh, And Daniel, I don't know, have I changed or has the world or what's going on here? I, I mean, to, to me, it's, it's a book of, of just absolute male vulnerability. <laughs> it yeah. really is. You know, and, and I think words that you just use like naive, of course, that's what to me anyway, makes the book still, despite its homophobia, despite its misogyny, despite, let's face it, it's noxious racism. I mean, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna necessarily just deflate our conversation right now by pointing out these obvious things. Despite all those horrors, there is this tenderness, vulnerability, and truly idealistic love for the possibilities of the United States that to us right now, of course, seems just completely gone, finished, yeah. hopeless, you know. Is that why it works so well for people in their teens, in their early 20s then? Because it's all about the possibilities of stuff. That yeah. When you get older, life is about those possibilities closing off, sometimes for reasons that you've chosen, sometimes for reasons you haven't. It's, it's all about you emerging from your chrysalis and this beautiful world out there ready for you to explore. Right, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, not to reduce this all to little autobiographical references to following the Grateful Dead around, but, you know, <laughs> it, 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 the book is, in a sense you know, a, a, a model for living a free life. I, I, I don't think that can really be denied, you know, and, and a life in, in which the, the freedom that it's offering is entirely contrary to the kinds of materialistic, militaristic um, anti-values that so many of us now associate uh, with the American project. You know, you, you referred to that wonderful passage just now of mm -hmm. the um, burning like Roman candles, etc. For me, the, the crucial passage was um, that time where he stops in a diner um, and describes a, a cowboy coming in. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is him literally just describing a guy walk, walking into a diner. We, we stopped along the road for a bite to eat. The cowboy went off to have a spare tire patch, and Eddie and I sat down in a kind of homemade diner. I heard a great laugh, the greatest laugh in the world, and here came this rawhide old-timer Nebraska farmer with a bunch of other boys into the diner. You could hear his raspy cries clear across the plains, across the whole gray world of them that day. Everybody else laughed with him. He didn't have a care in the world and had the hugest regard for everybody. I said to myself, wham, listen to that man laugh. That's the West. Here I am in the West. He came booming into the diner calling Ma's name, and she made the sweetest cherry pie in Nebraska. And I had some with a mountainous scoop of ice cream on the top. Ma, rustle me up some grub before I have to start eating myself raw or some darn silly idea like that. And he threw himself on a stool and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like, <laughs> wow, okay, this is a really over-the-top and almost embarrassing love letter to yeah. an idea, you know, to an idea of, of the West and friendship and brotherly comradeship. I and mean, It's totally embarrassing and unacceptable to anyone that holds on to cynicism as a kind of value, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's true. And the funny thing is, is if he had to live there, like say he grew up there, he oh, would not... It. Yeah, he would not be uh, memorializing hia 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 and and uh, no. you know, all the moo ma stuff going on. 
No, no, he'd be Peter Fonda, you know, or Jack Nicholson getting beaten up by those people. Right, <laughs> in, right. An easy writer, you know, they'd be like, they would look at him and say, who are you? They'd be... It's such a great lesson for writers as well because he writes beautifully and brilliantly, not by trying to be overly clever or use particularly long words. He just uses everyday words in a beautiful, poetic way. Absolutely, yeah. So On the Road comes out in 1957, which is why it appears where it does in Billy's song. What's the reaction like at the time? Well, there is um, the great review, right? This now legendary uh, first review written by a guy named Gilbert Milstein, right? And um, this review comes out in the paper of record, right? The New York Times. Um, and this is the, I just, I just did a quick Googling thing here, okay? This is the first sentence of the review. On the Road is the second novel by Jack Kerouac. And its publication is a historic occasion insofar as the exposure of an authentic work of art is of any great moment in an age in which the attention is fragmented and the sensibilities are blunted by the superlatives of fashion multiplied a millionfold by the speed and pound of communications, right? And in that review, Milstein very, I think, intelligently and presciently um, uh, anticipates the bad reviews that were then to come, right? Um, he, he says things like, I'm sure critics are going to say it's self-indulgent and that it's, it's written in a practically incomprehensible spew, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he, I think, nails it. And of course, this is what transforms Kerouac seemingly overnight from a kind of down at the heels failed novelist into a cultural icon. Unfortunately, we all know... <laughs> The result of that fame, which is to drive him ever more into uh, alcohol um, and, and, and bitterness, right? It's, it's, it's uh, unfortunate to say the least. The beat then becomes the beat Nick, you know, becomes a, practically an object of, of ridicule. Yeah, very quickly, right? It's the sort of review, Katie, you can imagine uh, Kerouac picking up the New York Times and reading it and then just doing quite, uh, quite a little dance around the cafe or the house where he's living and then waving it in the air and thinking, I've cracked it, I've made, <laughs> I'm up and running. But what did other people think of it, Daniel? There's the famous line from Truman Capote, isn't there, that everyone always comes up with. He simply says, that's not writing, it's typing. Youch. <laughs> Was it Capote being a bit bitchy as well because In Cold Blood, his, his best known piece of work, is relatively controversial in itself in that people think he made up large portions um, of fact and dialogue. I mean, never underestimate the petty jealousies <laughs> and resentments uh, b between authors, of course. I think, I think that had a lot to do with it. And also, I mean, going back to an earlier point that we've made, On the Road is, is really embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, it's almost radical in its goofiness. And I think a lot of people had trouble getting their heads around the fact that here was someone who was completely sentimental and nostalgic, um, but also expressing these ideas in this, in this really kind of brand new propulsive and percussive prose style. And they didn't know what to do with it. You know, that's, it seems that what we could call, I guess, the shock of the new. I mean, it, it just came, it seemingly came out of nowhere. And again, I, I would point listeners to the, style of Kerouac's sentences as much as the content. Like, sure, he gives us these visions of hitchhiking around America that were so influential for so many thousands of 
of young kids. But as, as a model for the sentence, I think On the Road remains a, a great novel. Well, it's a perfect marriage of form and function because it's about just go, go, going across America, not stopping, zigzagging back and forth. And that is what the prose is doing. It's just, you know, it it blows your hair up. It blows your skirt up. And uh, there's no no stopping to take a breath. And certainly no stopping for Kerak once the book took off. Uh, Sales were good, I imagine. It was a hit. It was well-reviewed. And then, of course, the the haters come in and have their say. And as you mentioned, uh, his enthusiasm for alcohol seemed to accelerate at that stage. Now, what was what was his issue with alcohol? Because uh, there's a there's a point uh, closer to the end of his life where he told a friend, Fran Landsman, I'm a Catholic and I can't commit suicide, but I plan to drink myself to death. You know, what? what is this death wish? Is it simply that he's an addict uh, or is it something that is uh, it brought about because he can't cope with the scrutiny of the public? What's going on? Right. I mean, I, I would imagine it's, it's all those things, certainly. But I, I would also in a sense reiterate his, his deflation and disappointment at seeing his ideas, which again, tenderness, piety, you know, order, yeah, yeah. seeing those ideas taken up by people he was disgusted by. Uh, that's know? the class. That's like Kurt Cobain uh, despairing of the Nirvana fans. Like, right, right. The, you know, the prophets and the, the artists who don't approve of their cohort. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, he got a little bit tired of these, you know, uh, uh, acid heads knocking on his mom's door, demanding a meeting with the great sage. You know, he, he didn't want that authority. He didn't want that authority invested in himself. He wanted to be a, he was a writer. You know? Yeah. There's also, maybe it's the lyricism of his sentences, Katie, but he has such a vast influence on young musicians and people who would go on to change the world in their own way. In Bob Dylan, you can hear so much Kerouac in Bob sure. Dylan's lyrics, can't yeah. you? Um, the Doors probably wouldn't have existed, Ray Manzarek has said, without Kerouac. Um, you can hear him in Van Morrison all the time. Van Morrison name checks him on Astral Weeks. And then maybe... maybe and Tom him, Waits. Tom Waits. I mean, yeah. what a huge example he must have been on him. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what about King Crimson? I was I was mentioned oh, that. That's interesting. You know, you know King Crimson's album yeah. Beat. You know. That's oh, a, I don't know that one. There's a little triumvirate of records that they did: um, Discipline, Beat, and Three of a Perfect Pair. And Beat is like King Crimson's concept album around the relationship of of Neil Cassidy and nice. Jack Kerouac. Oh. Very King, yeah. King Crimson. Yeah, there's a song called Neil and Jack and Me that, as a teenager, I was used to you know listen to and. And feel very romantic and inspired by. Yeah, and he's um, you know, that people are 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 paying the the homage forward, but he was the original music buff, wasn't he? Because he celebrated jazz all the way throughout. I mean, and and was this quite transgressive? Was it considered quite transgressive in the mid century, certainly forties and fifties, for a white author to be celebrating uh, African American musicians and this form that was seen as like wild and you know straight from the jungle and you know untamed? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know so much about transgressive. I, I think the word I would use is is original because was Kerouac blowing the doors wide open in terms of taking seriously a popular art form? Not really, because lots of white intellectuals took jazz really seriously. So Kerak 
in a sense, had a context in which to celebrate jazz as a serious art form, right? What I think he's contributing, though, and, and I, I, of course, credit him for this, is this idea that jazz can actually show writers new ways of thinking about the line, right? I mean, as Kerouac puts it in describing Mexico City blues, he, he explains, I want to be considered a jazz poet blowing a long blues in an afternoon jam session on Sunday. I take 242 choruses. My ideas vary and sometimes roll from chorus to chorus or from halfway through a chorus to halfway into the next. So it's like, oh, right. Writers can now look outside their immediate genre, outside literature, to think about ways of expanding and experimenting with the line, right? And I think Kerouac is really important in, in terms of providing, you know, as, as pedestrian as this sounds, pretty radical advice for writers, you know? He's so young when he dies. He's only 47 when he dies in 1969. And he has succeeded, Katie, in drinking himself to death, mm. as he promised he would. Um, how do we view this, Daniel? Do we, do we view this as a sort of tragic end to a life that brought so much and could have done more? Because really, when you reread on the road, as much as that sense of adventure and the mysticism, it sort of ends in failure, doesn't it? Yeah. And the, the main characters are aren't happy at the end of this great mystic adventure. Yeah, I mean, you sense from the very beginning that the search for the pearl, as you put it, is doomed. I mean, there's a deep, we haven't actually discussed this yet, right? There's a deep vein of kind of existential melancholia that seeds Kerouac's work um, that can be pretty devastating, I think, for a reader sensitive to the shape and form of, of Kerouac's writing. It's like he's taking us on this visionary journey that is preordained to fail, you know, <laughs> and, and his death seems like almost an autobiographical reflection of those ideas that, that um, are, are so crucial to so many of, of his works. Again, I go back to Kerouac's um, fascination, obsession, and adherence to that idea, life is suffering. Yeah, it is. And this is how, this is how he dies. It's awful. It's awful. I was thinking how um, strangely satisfying his death is, though, weirdly, just narratively. You, you know, it's almost like uh, he couldn't have plotted it better. And yet what he left is this template that so many future generations have followed. And I'm thinking about just the romance of getting on a Greyhound bus. Of course, the reality is so grubby and <laughs> grimy. And, uh, I know. You I know. know. Tell me about it. <laughs> but you still can elevate the experience by thinking, you know, Jack Kerouac did it and it was good enough for him. You know, I might be in luck uh, and I might have a vision. You never know. Somewhere between the next truck stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. How many of us, in a sense, have somehow rationalized lying on a bug infested floor <laughs> on a really crummy, you know, air mattress surrounded by very unsavory characters doing horrible things. You know what I mean? Like he, Thanks, he does. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I know, I know that's an incredibly corny and adolescent, adolescent thing to say, but it's totally true. He opens up a whole world of possibilities that we otherwise perhaps wouldn't be so open to experiencing. Right. And what do you think Jack Kerouac would have made of, of his legacy, the fact that he, he lives on? What do you think he'd have to say to, about this? I mean, I, I always get the sense from all the biographical accounts out there 
that he wasn't necessarily opposed to the idea of being famous, um, but I think he wanted to be famous as a writer, not famous as someone who would end up on, um, you know, Gap posters in New York City, <laughs> um, you know, used to sell khakis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think his, his idea of fame was not, I want to be famous as a cultural icon, but I want to be famous like Thomas Wolfe. You know, I want to be famous like Walt Whitman. I want to be famous as a writer, as a groundbreaking avant-garde writer who opened up the field of American writing in ways that were, previous to my works, unimaginable. You know, um, is that how we remember him or do we remember him more for the sorts of anecdotes that the three of us have been perhaps guiltily sharing? <laughs> well, I think uh, we can consider the cultural icon aspect, the cherry on the Sunday, because I think all of those things are true. I think he's remembered for all of yeah. them. And thank you, Daniel Kane, for gossiping with us. My pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for your time and interest in Kerouac, who I think is forever valid. Thank you so much, Daniel. That's been fascinating. And if you would like to hear more from Daniel, he has two excellent books about this whole scene and about the New York scene. They are all poets welcome, and we saw the light. Well, here's a great example of Billy Joel showing me something that I thought I didn't need to look at again. Jack Kerouac on the road. Um, I have a new appreciation. How about you? Yeah, here's a strange thing that happened to me, Katie, in the week before we have recorded this. I was pretty certain I had a copy of On the Road because I loved it. Yeah. And I went to the bookshelf and there was no sign of On the Road mm. where it should have been, which made me think that probably the last person I lent it to has hung on to it. And then I asked about two or three other friends, you got a copy of On the Road? And they went, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they will text me back, I think someone else has got it. It's one of those books that you pass around. So I bought myself, Katie, a brand new copy of On the Road, partly so I could reread it, which has been great fun. But also, my boys are too young for it. They're 10 and they're 8. But there's going to become a time in the not-too-distant future where, as their dad, I can just slide it off the bookshelf, slide it across the kitchen table and say, I know you think I'm an idiot now, but have a little read of that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're at the stage now where they don't think you're an idiot. No, I mean, it will, it will come. But at the moment, happily, we're in the good times. <laughs> <laughs> so next week's episode is something that is way out because it's going to be Sputnik. Tom, do you know that for the longest time when I was um, a young whippersnapper thinking I was going to be a pop star, that happened for a minute in my 20s. And I thought that my surname, Puckrick, was way <laughs> too boring. And I thought... Uh, wouldn't it be better if my surname was Sputnik? Yes. So I went by, that was my moniker for a while. Just Sputnik or Katie Sputnik? Katie Sputnik. <laughs> it's just one of those bad ideas that thankfully never saw the light of day. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to get that off my chest. I like the fact that you would have kept Katie as Katie. Actually, I think that was Kimba. I changed that to Kimba. Kimba and that, Sputnik. <laughs> it, that was stupid as well. That was based on some uh, Japanese anime. It was Kimba the White Lion. Uh, all of it was very ill-conceived and probably why I'm not a pop star even today. <laughs> I've got a feeling, Katie, that Sputnik is a word that randomly appears in Snap's number one smash hit, The Power. I think there's a little blast of Russian in it where you certainly hear something that sounds like <laughs> Sputnik. But I could be wrong. We'll find out before the next episode. <laughs> Crowd Network. A place 
where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.